episode 89 of the world famous Tetrapodology podcast. I'm I'm Paul Verhagen from the Netherlands. And oh, I got his name wrong. Do it again. I'm Paul Verhoeven from the Netherlands. And I podcast with a non-plesiosaurian morph plesiosaur. Um, any news before we oh yeah heaps of news but there's no news segment anymore so let's move on okay I just wanted to briefly mention a couple of books real quick look it's the it's the Dutch edition of Dinosaurs How They Lived and Evolved or as they oh. say in cool. the Netherlands Dinosaurs How Spectacular Fossilian I Knew and Techniken on Beel Speeds Completer Marken that's Which a completely is... different title. <laughs> I know. It's a completely different <laughs> format from any oh, edition really? of Dinosaurs, How They Lived in a Vault. Complete... It's like a completely different book. And what's it got on the cover? I've already shared this a lot on social media. It's got... It's a homage to the 1990 Jerkers and Jerkers volume. Mm. Which you, you probably don't know that because you don't look at books. But um, I do. I have that yeah, one I, next I, to my I, bed. Of course you have it. <laughs> say no more um yes it's got john civic's 1990 ceratosaurus growls at an impossibly immense brachiosaur <laughs> and yeah so like i don't think they know this exists they just they just saw that yeah so so there's that i thought that was kind of interesting and then newly arrived in the post today this it's dr dean lomax's prehistoric beasts come face to face with amazing animals from the past it's a goddamn pop-up book oh, of cool. prehistoric animals. <laughs> and I've literally only just received it, so I haven't started looking at it. I really liked Dean's last one, Prehistoric Pets, as in last. Uh, describe what you're looking at there. I'm looking at a a, a pop-up Dinosuchus and a Montosaurus, is that right? Yeah. And the Which... Dinosuchus is, somehow gets its mouth around the Montosaurus's neck when it pops up. That's yeah. advanced pop uppery, that is. If it is Edmontosaurus, Edmontosaurus is Mastrictian and Dinosaurus is Mastrictian. But I think we'll let that one slip. I mean, it's just, it's just great. I'm I sure really... there was an Edmontosaurus type hadrosaur around. Yeah. Oh, there's, in a, the there's, a, there's an Otodus Megalodon, there's a Megatooth shark. I mean, these are really good. <laughs> right. So, so this is Prehistoric Beasts, brand new, a, a pop up book. It's got a, a woolly mammoth and an African elephant on the cover. Um, Templar book 16.99 so that's there you go that's my promotion I'll put I'll, I'll talk about it on social media later we're here to talk about another new book and if you've listened to the previous episode you'll know that Dr Darren Nash's book Ancient Sea Reptiles Please for Ezekiel's Moses and More is now out published by Natural History Museum Publishing in the UK and Smithsonian Books in the US and last time now you got to, like, stop me from doing this. We mustn't do these episodes where it's, Darren tries to get through all the facts. And Shut up, John, I'm busy talking. I've got to get through my list, right? I don't think that's a good way to do a podcast. I have told you about this before. So, <laughs> right, so... Victim we're not gonna... blaming, Darren. Victim blaming. <laughs> we're not going to do that anymore. Um, we're going to do what ordinary podcasters do, which is tackle a single subject, and then maybe two people yabber back to... Middle-aged white guys yammer back and forth as is normal for podcasts. Mm -hmm. And um, this time, Thalatosuchians. Now you've read the book, John. You've got notes. Oh yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> um, Thalatosuchians. There's a whole chapter in this book on Thalatosuchians or sea crocs. And one of the things that we'll touch on is the goddamn name of these animals, because. So the proper name for them is Thalatosuchians. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Before you get started, Darren, what is the plan today? Are we going to try and get through? Because last time we wanted to get through the remaining groups. Just We're just going to do Thalatosuchians. All right, cool. There's a, there's so much to say about that one group. All right. We can, we can Excellent. yammer back and forth about them for some tens of minutes. Okay. Um, so Thalatosuchians, anything Thalatos means of the sea and Sukia means crocodile type thing so thalatosuchians the sea crocs i deliberately call them sea crocs 
and not see crocodiles. And here we come to the thorny issue of the application or misapplication of common names in technical nomenclature, because paleontologists like to call these animals sea crocodiles, except for the experts, except for the people that actually work on these things. Because if you work on, right, what's a crocodile? Not a trick question. John, what's a crocodile? Well, I think for a lot of people, an alligator is a type of crocodile. So <laughs> I don't. An alligator think... is a type of crocodile. Yeah. Well, obviously. Okay. If I, a, if... a crocodile is something that is that big thing that is even. Okay, let's not be so ignorant. It's they're not lizards. People know that. But they're all the big things that, like uh, aquatic, have the sort of armored back, the big teeth, the chomping jaws. That's a crocodile. They're all crocodiles. I really disagree with that. If okay, so first well, I think of all, if you point to an alligator and say what that is, what is that? Anyone that lives where crocodiles are a thing will say it's a crocodile. American people that live where alligators are might say it's an alligator pointing to a crocodile. I would certainly agree that people, the layperson, can't tell the difference. That's but they fact. don't. They don't. They don't care. It's not like in terms of like where these things come from they are correct that this is the croc croc lineage this is not you know what else are they what do you call the whole group then in common terms crocodilians Cro no one says crocodilians i've never heard when, a normal if, person if, say a crocodilian i have, have you? if you well no, if, but, oh you're a normal person <laughs> no comment if no. you <laughs> If you want to find out, okay, you're right that <laughs> you're right in that popular, the court of public opinion <clears throat> doesn't necessarily reflect known information. But if you want to know something, you go and look in a book or these days you Google it. And we have agreed in the English language and in some other languages as well, that there's a bunch of crocodile type things, which includes alligators, which are different from crocodiles. Crocodiles are a specific subset of that group of things, and that group of things is called crocodilians. This is a mistake. Just it's go not... with alligators or a type of crocodile. For God's sake, people. Come well, on. Well, I I flatly disagree. If you look at any No one's single... ever gonna be, no no one is ever in the real world gonna differentiate between crocodilians and crocodile. I'm sorry, but this is a nerd fantasy. No one is ever gonna do this. People don't pay attention to the ends of words so carefully like that. It's a bit like frogs and toads, right? That's or different. monkeys and apes. It's that just those. Those just are both give up, different. Give up. Those are both different cases. I know. I know what you're saying. I do understand what you're saying. I just think it's very unrealistic to correct people and say, "No, that's not a crocodile. It's a crocodilian." Well, oh, thanks, Mister Nerd. That's really cleared things up for me. Crocodiles are a subset of crocodilians. I'm absolutely. This is. I'm committed to this. This is. This is the oh, starting well. point of my argument. If you you're look at any, die so, on this hill. Okay. If you, I am going to die on this. If anybody, if you look in any book on living animals, let alone living reptiles, we have agreed in our language that the, the animals are called crocodilians, right? So my starting argument is crocodiles are a specific group of crocodilians. We do not use crocodile for all crocodilians. And if you Who's pointed me? humans the english no speaking. no people who write books if, about this sort of thing. if you pointed if no if you pointed to an alligator and mm. said that's a crocodile that's not up for debate it's you're wrong and if a person that has never read a book and i know many of them are, are <laughs> related to lots of them if they've never read a book and they point to an alligator that's a crocodile that'd be like calling a dog a cat it's like or, or in fact they're even more different because they diverge from the Okay, in phylogenetic terms, they're more different, not morphologically, but it it is wrong. It is wrong to call an alligator. An alligator is not a crocodile. So if it's people are a... mis if people are misapplying that term, they're misapplying it. An alligator is not a crocodile. Yeah, they're so too close. The, the terms are too close. Only because well, so what? So your whole argument boils down to people are stupid and lazy. What kind of an argument is that? People have a limited number of categories in the world. This and, would yeah, not apply to anything else. It's not. It's never fair that zoology is regarded as like we go by the laziest person's most uncaring attitude. <laughs> if it was the case for anything else that anybody cares about. So I'm going to walk around and see a plane in the sky and call it a car. Or I'm going to point to a train and call it a bicycle. Or I'm going to point at you and Darren, call you a... Darren, 
Darren, I guarantee <laughs> you do this with everything you're not an expert in. I always get corrected. <laughs> Are you happy with that? Because then you end up with billions of things. If it's something you that just I cannot keep track of as a normal person, even if it's something that I don't care about, that I have no emotional investment in, <laughs> and I'm wrong, then okay, thank you, thank but, you for correcting me. But is it me. wrong, Darren? Is it wrong? I don't think it's wrong. That's what I'm saying. It, it's yes. just, it's just a, it's a bigger category. Some things are just wrong, right? So you yeah, know, like calling an alligator a crocodile is wrong. Okay, okay, okay. We'll, we'll, stipu- we'll, we'll stipulate. Yes, technically wrong, which is the worst type of wrong, but. <laughs> I think it's wrong on every single level. If you do it, you're just like, oh, just wrong. It's like, no, that's not up for debate. That's not a kind of crocodile. We've never agreed that. We <laughs> have never agreed that. <laughs> so, 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 okay. So with that, having, having been established that, that is the, that's the, clearly the case and not up for debate. <laughs> oh my God. Um, <laughs> um, then how have paleontologists used the crocodile? How, how have paleontologists used the term crocodile? They have looked at any animal vaguely similar to crocodiles. Oh, it turns out oh, that even paleontologists. It turns out paleontologists are just as lazy as a street person that's never opened a book. All due respect to them, and they're just like crocodile, 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 crocodile. Oh wow! Where it's like who'd have thunk it? But, eh? but but so why is that? Because paleontologists are sticklers for the most precise nomenclature in general. And yet, wait a minute. So if, if you call like a fossil animal, a fossil member of this lineage, that's like 200 million years old, it looks nothing like a crocodile, really. <laughs> it looks a bit like a crocodile, but it's very different from a crocodile. And you point to it and say crocodile. It's like, so you're saying an alligator is a crocodile. And paleontologists say, no, call, well, uh, actually, uh, I guess the term crocodile has been more widely applied. Uh, and so, yeah, it's a crocodile. So you're saying an alligator is a crocodile. Sure. Among specialists, the term crocodile has got a specific meaning. It goes to the group crocodilidae or crocodiloidea, the sort of larger group. And then with gharials. Shouldn't they be um, crocodiloidians then? Not crocodile? Crocodile is not because that's crocodile would be crocodilia. There's a mistake going down this route. Um, there's so maybe uh, they're just wrong, and all this agreement that you've had is just wrong. Anyway, anyway, is there? There's got to be a point somewhere in here. Uh, is, the it, point, is it? Right. The is point it? is that okay. So uh, in keeping with the idea that most decisions made within phylogenetic nomenclature are bad ones, the proposal made in the late 1980s is that crocodilia the term crocodilia which which sort of classically was mostly associated with all members of the lineage that should be restricted to the crown group so alligators and crocodiles gharials controversial phylogenetic position but they may actually be crocodiles <laughs> gharials may be crocodiles unlike alligators the crown group is part of crocodilia anyway guys yeah the, the crown group might be, the crown group should be called crocodilia and in order to differentiate it from the vagus looser sense of the term crocodilia which is spelled with an i crocodilia um the authors who wanted to go with this said denton uh, and clark they said let's stick with crocodilia Dilia with a Y, Crocodilia, and that's the name for the crown group. And the whole lineage we'll call Crocodilomorpha. And we've been over this before because you, you, you have a good point there. Crocodilomorph is not anything morph is not necessarily a good term for the group that actually includes the things that are actually associated with the original term. The subset of Crocodilomorphs that are most like Crocodilians are Crocodiliforms. So when you Hell come to an, so when you come to an extinct group like the Thalassuchians, <laughs> which aren't crocodiles and not close to crocodiles, they're not in the crown group. So under this nomenclature, they're not crocodilians with a Y. They're either crocodiliforms or the crocodilomorphs or both. We agree that it's unambiguous they're crocodilomorphs, but there's some controversy as to whether they're crocodiliforms. So they're non-crocodilian. <sighs> crocodiliforms oh. and because i don't like using the term crocodiles for this group i call them sea crocs i prefer to use thalassuchians 
but I know that a lot of people see the word Thalatazuki and they're like, what? Uh, random combination of letters. I can't even say that. Whereas it's actually not that simple. I can't forget Thalatazuki. So there you go. So that's the group, uh, <laughs> the, the Thalatazukians or Seagrocks. So they diverged and, um, off. So just to clarify all that, uh, all those horrible big terms, they diverged before modern crocodiles in your terminology. They're not. They're not crocodilians and and, and alligators. <clears throat> yeah, they're way outside the crown group. And yeah. then there's there's actually some competing views on exactly where they go within this whole assemblage of animals because as soon as you start looking at the crocodilomorph fossil record there's tens of lineages it's very complicated there's many groups that are not much like living crocodilians the crown group many of which are terrestrial some are amphibious some do look superficially like living crocodiles or alligators there's a whole bunch of extinct very long snouted often very large ones including the dirosaurs the felidosaurs and the conventional view has been that thalatosuchians are somewhere within that lot they're within this giant long snouted sort of part of the tree in which case they're not that far from the crown group they're actually part of neosuchia the group that includes like, the advanced crocodilian like crocodiliforms but since the late 90s an alternative view has been presented based on various anatomical details mostly to brain case anatomy and stuff which finds thalatosuchians to be not close to those long snouted animals like dirosaurids and phyllidosaurs and such but instead to be um shouldn't talk of up and down in a phylogeny but closer to the uh origin of crocodilomorphs like uh they must have originated really early on in crocodilomorph history that is that interestingly that view is now supported by some fossils from the earliest jurassic so thalatosuchians did exist in the earliest Jurassic, pretty close to like 190 million years ago or thereabouts. And they've got some features which indicate they are archaic and not close to the crown group, not within Neosuchia, convergently similar to the long snouted groups like Dirosaurids and Philidosaurs, all of which have been used, uh, Tethosuchians, uh, don't, don't mention all these complicated names. <clears throat> so there are, I cover this in Ancient Sea Reptiles. I've got little cladograms showing competing positions for Thalatosuchians. And just and, to be clear, what are they diverging from? Well, that was my next point, John, because the problem is that once you get down into that like really earliest Jurassic, latest Triassic time of origin, that's when the fossil record for this group is the poorest. And it's when we think that a whole load of really interesting Mesozoic lineages diverged or originated and we basically don't have good fossils for them we don't have good fossils for the earliest members of a large number of crocodilomorph lineages that originated at that time which probably does include thalatsukians and the earliest thalatsukians we know these early jurassic ones are already like aquatically specialized they're already fully marine so we lack fossils of what um their sort of amphibious prototype, you know, oldest members must have looked like. But we're looking at something, this is diverging in crown group terms from the bird line, right? So birds and dinosaurs and all that. But presumably... Oh. Well, we're, we're already deep on the crop yes. lineage, aren't we? Yeah. Yes. So that's what I'm saying. In... So what, what's the nearest sort of reference point on the other side? So we've got, we've got modern day crocodilians... We've got Thalatosuchians. What's the nearest reference point that people might know on the other side of that tree? The, the, all of these groups. Yeah, I know that there's, two, incredibly... there's nobody knows what they are. Well, I, uh, I... that's what I'm asking. <laughs> what, what's, a, what's the what's the bracket on the other side that people might recognise? Which sort of lineages within Crocodilomorpha are close to Thalatosuchians? I mean, even no. which is the closest one that people recognise? I'm not with you at all because they're they're deep within, they're within Crocodilomorpha, so the line the lineages that surround Thalatosuchians are ob obscure Crocodilomorphs like Spinosuchians. Yeah. So keep going down that and, tree. What's a group that I I would recognise? We have to leave croc. So the most archaic Crocodilomorphs are Spinosuchians, which are a mostly Triassic, early Jurassic group of long-legged, mostly cursorial. Sort of one to two, three, one to three meter long 
uh, crocodilomorphs. Mm-hmm. And then as you get closer to the crown group, there's protosuchians, which are sort of kind of similar, sort of long-legged, semi-terrestrial, not long-snouted things. Then you've got animals like the notosuchians. I, I mean, like the mostly Gondwan. And so, so I think what you're to... telling me is the nearest <clears throat> reference point we have is probably dinosaurs and pterosaurs and stuff, right? Because what well, other things are there down that croc line? That, that's, that's what I'm asking. With, right. So, so those apart members, from all the other uh, like fairly obscure groups, I think all these groups are obscure. So, yeah. if you get out, so those are that's within Crocodilomorpha. Get outside of Crocodilomorpha, and you're still on the croc lineage. Yes. I, well, yeah. then, then, then outside of Crocodilomorpha, you've got Aetosaurs. Yeah. Okay. Which are sort of omnivorous, herb, herbivorous, sort of shovel snouted heavily armored often spiky backed yes Croc- crocodile pigs it, or something you know for some reason they remind me uh, of pigs i think it's a snout but yes armadillo armadillo dials is my favorite yes. term for them yeah. armadillo dials although they're really big some well, they go from like a meter long to like eight meters long the biggest one yeah. and then of course all the rausukians so i think that's probably your closest reference because yeah. people at least some people and some that listen to us will be familiar with animals like postosuchus yep uh, I think that's in Walking with Dinosaurs. Um, which yeah. others have made it into pop culture? There's there are many of them. I mean, uh, Tachinosuchus, Poposaurus, the sailback Tinosauriscids. I mean, there's there's a there's a large number of yeah. Postosuchus is a good one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So so yeah. these are uh, this is way outside the remit for this what <laughs> we're supposed to be talking about on this particular podcast, but um, this episode, but. It's often been said that Rausukians, these croc line, terrestrial, longish limbed, uh, mid sized to gigantic uh, terrestrial predators, they often have the. Uh, they sort of look like retro dinosaurs. They look like the dinosaurs that, that Hollywood makes portraying as dinosaurs. So, for example, that new 65 film. Which I'm sure you've gone to see at the cinema. Mm. Uh, I haven't. I don't think I will see it at the cinema. Mm-hmm. But like the creatures in that could be Rausukians. They're kind of like you know, they're 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 crocodilian appearance in terms of like their scoots and armor and all that sort of stuff. They're terrestrial and quite fast, and they've got like a sort of what people imagine as a T-Rex head, but isn't a T-Rex head at all. So they've got like kind of like a deep, narrow, sort of toothy skull. Uh, so those are archaic members of the crocodilomorph lineage but they're not crocodilomorphs so all the rausukians then there's the phytosaurs which might be on the croc lineage and might not be it depends on which study you look at the most recent studies do find phytosaurs to be on the croc lineage and they're crocodilian like <laughs> but they're nothing to do with crocodilomorphs um and that and that's sort of your there's a couple of others more obscure i just groups, wanted but... to place where what sort of uh, what sort of groups are and what sort of picture we should have but it's really diverse actually isn't it of course it is really diverse and that's scratching the surface i mean yeah the the non-crocodilomorph croc line archosaurs and again what term is applied to them varies according to who you ask pseudosuchians crurotarsans uh crocodilotarsans i mostly go with crurotarsans because the the Probably the default name for the entire lineage, the croc lineage, is Pseudosuchia, meaning false crocodiles. So oh, the croc lineage is I've false... forgotten about this. Yeah, so oh. I, I, I don't like no. the fact that that's... I don't mind croc line. You know, I think that's in some yeah. ways that's why, descriptive. That's... that's what we mean. And it doesn't doesn't involve a huge name that might or might not tell you where it is. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, it, that was a big it, diversion. So let's. Well, uh... Uh, yeah. I mean, so one final point on this, which is, as should be obvious from everything that we've just said, this isn't covered well for an interested person that's not a specialist anywhere. It's just not really available. Uh, it is. I mean, I would say there's a couple of like books that do cover fossil reptiles that do go into it, and there's a few review articles, but in general the diversity of crocodile archosaurs isn't covered anywhere well i really want to do something about it i would like to do a book similar to ancient sea reptiles or dinosaurs how they lived and evolved but um whether more than like 10 people will buy it is, mm. is um, <laughs> remains to be seen so uh so yeah there's that so there you go that's where thalatosuchians fit on the archosaur family tree and then okay so thalatosuchians now 
broadly speaking, they're superficially similar. If you think of a typical one, they're superficially similar to like, uh, I shouldn't have said that because they're quite diverse, but some of them are superficially similar to like long snouted crocodiles or gharials. So there's like, they're covered in osteoderms, as in like both the oste osteoderms doesn't just mean scales. Osteoderms is a bone supported structure with a horny scoot on the top of it. And so a whole bunch of them do have true osteoderms arranged in rows on the dorsal surface. And I'm not going to be able to describe it well for a podcast because it's not like the crocodilian arrangement. And I am using, I use crocodilian for the crown group alone. I'm not using it in the old fashioned lazy term. They've got a dorsal arrangement of osteoderms and some of them got a ventral arrangement of osteoderms as well. Then there's scaly all over the body and they've got limbs that allow them to move on land with, with, you know, dis distinguished fingers and toes. Mm -hmm. And they would have a serrated tail like a living, like a crocodilian. Those thalassukians are the teleosauroids. And they are specialized. They are weird in many ways. But they're not as specialized as the more extreme thalassukians, which are the metriorhynchoids. The metriorhynchoids. The middle-jawed ones. <laughs> <laughs> the names in uh, zoological history... Are all to do with like the history of names they're not like let's choose the best one they're just like the history of the name where like who named it first so metria rhinchoids and we have some i mentioned earlier that we have some like early jurassic thalassukians among those are early jurassic metriorhynchoids and they have osteoderms but most metriorhynchoids the majority of which are metriorhynchids <laughs> a subgroup of metriorhynchoids most of them don't have osteoderms and they were highly specialized for aquatic life. They did not have uh, limbs suited for locomotion on land. They had flippers. They had relatively small fore flippers, and they had quite long hind flippers. The hind flippers consist of a long femur section, a short tibia, and a long foot. We're not entirely sure how they swam, but then they have a vertical tail fluke. So they have a shark-shaped, a shark-like, it's not in the shape of a shark, how I hate language. <laughs> it's it's a sort of semi-lunate, you know, sort of shape for yep. lateral sculling. And they're highly streamlined. And lots of the skull is mostly tubular and super streamlined as well. And among the earliest reconstructions of these animals, done... Uh, early 1900s there's a good one in Samuel Williston's Water Reptiles Past and Present 1905 the only good book done on mesozoic marine reptiles prior to uh, ancient <laughs> sea reptiles there's a reconstruction in there and based on a German specimen of an animal now known as Crocosaurus Williston's illustration shows it as entirely smooth skinned mm -hmm. so and and that was a sort of kind of like a I don't want to say meme, but I'm going to say meme. That was like a meme all the way up to the sort of, you know, 21st century. People were saying, do these animals are smooth skinned, no scales. They're so adapted for aquatic life. They've even lost the scales, not, not just osteoderms. They've lost the scales as well. And then in the 21st century, some bright sparks who know what they're talking about said, wait a minute, these animals are crocodilomorphs and they're reptiles. Why have you decided to start doing them with smooth skin? Shouldn't they have scales? And without mentioning any names, <laughs> Gabriel Aguito, some people started doing them with scaly skin. And it's like, well, well yeah, actually, that makes perfect sense. They're, they're crocodilomorphs, they're oxals, they should have scaly skin. Why did we ever think they might have smooth skin? But then it turns out, go and look at the fossils. Oh, oopsie, actually, they do have smooth skin. So there's a 2015 study. 2015, that doesn't sound right. No, it's not 2015. I'm going to go with 20. I'm going to go with 2021. That sounds like a better year. 2021, Frederick Spindler and colleagues, they describe several uh, skin segments from Metria rinkids. They do have smooth skin after all. They do yep. have like creases and folds and stuff. But <sighs> there's that vagary where while we might talk about a lot of aquatic tetrapods being smooth skinned like for example dolphins and whales it doesn't mean you don't have wrinkles and folds and stuff you often do and you're also looking at you're not looking at a live animal you're looking at 
a fossil. Yeah. So you're looking at a preserved corpse, which has undergone who knows what. Yeah, it's been scavenged on, it's undergone desiccation, and all kinds of processes yeah. have affected. Right, you're not necessarily looking at a live animal. So the fossil skin segments do show folds and creases and whatnot. They show some little like uh, pockmarks, indentations that could be um, the behavior of like parasites or scavengers or whatever. But yeah, it basically turns out that Meteorinchid, Meteorinchoid, Thalatosuchians are indeed smooth skins. So I think um, this is a lesson in why paleo memes exist in paleo art. Because if you ditch something and just say, well, I don't think there's any evidence for that, or, you know, I think I'm going to do it my own way, you can be ignoring hidden knowledge that the original one was done under instruction, perhaps, by someone that knew something, and you don't know it. And you yep. can't find the original information. So it's easier. It's better just to copy just in case there's hidden information in there. Um, so I think about this a lot when I do animals like this, you know, where I'm not super familiar with the literature and um, and maybe you just know that there's not that much work done on it and you find someone, something old that seems to have been done under instruction. Someone seemed to have known what they were doing. Do you really want to change that? Yep. Um, so, so, yeah. Yeah, you're dead right. I absolutely agree. We know from the illustration in Williston's Water Reptiles Past and Present that the specific drawing that I mentioned is based on a specific fossil. I said Cricosaurus, I was wrong, it's Rachiosaurus, and it's actually based on this fossil, the one at the top there, for mm -hmm. our listeners. And that specimen, Williston, must have looked at that. that. That one's got skin on it, and that one's got smooth skin on it. So he must have based it on that. And then that is the thing that sort of got missed and wasn't checked by later people. I think this specimen's in Germany. So, you know, not everyone can just toddle along to the museum there and go and see it. But um, notice that it's also got a semi-lunate tail fluke uh, preserved. Yep. It's one of the... Because they do... Meteorinchoids and kids in particular do have a highly specialised distal tail anatomy. The tail vertebrae bend downwards as is famously established for parvopelvian and ichthyosaurs as well, and also now for mosasaurs. And the neural spines, the pointy upward rod-shaped structures on the top of the vertebrae, instead of pointing towards the tail tip, the ones in that down curve section point the other way. So you've got the neural spines point backwards to start with, and then point upwards and forwards at the tail tip. And all of this is to do with supporting this crescent-shaped uh, vertical tail fluke mm. so these these animals had transitioned to tail tip uh tail supported locomotion of a foot on the name of the particular kind of swimming style that's propelled by the end of the tail there's there's so in mm. their evolutionary history aquatic animals uh, and this isn't just tetrapods because this goes for fishes and some invertebrate groups as well when you go into the water in the first place or when you start adapting to swimming in open water, first of all, your whole body is sinuous like an eel. Then it's just the tail is sinuous and then it just goes to just the end part of the tail. Um, and you see this happening again and again in aquatic reptiles and other animal groups. So, Thalatsukians, Meteorinchoid Thalatsukians. Are we guessing this. that has something to do with swimming at speed? Because there's still plenty of animals that are adapted to having the whole body, you know, things that have been in the in the water for a long time. Eels yeah. are an obvious example, right? Um, well, it's not like it's not it's a it's not a bad way to swim, but it's probably got trade offs with other things like all these things. Yes and no, because so the faster swimmers are of this uh, words carangiform is one of the terms. I think I think it might be carangiform swimming based on. The, there's a group of fishes called the Karanges. That sounds, yeah. sounds right. Anyway, I think I think so. The the faster swimmers do have this tail end only uh, method of locomotion. It's it's best, but it's also like uh, least energy. It's least costly in terms of energy because obviously, if you're only moving the end part of your tail rather than the whole of your tail or the whole of your body, uh, it's. Presumably... But you need a lot of power in that small part. 
so well yeah they're they're interesting they're mostly high energy animals they're sort of they tend to be like endothermic they tend to yeah. like have high they're high in the food chain whereas yeah. something something with like a sort of lazier slower um style of locomotion is often not like a, an apex predator or need to be endothermic or what have you so again that would to discuss that properly would take us into the dark sordid depths of animal physiology and stuff like that which avoid <laughs> at all costs in my opinion um anything that starts to smell of chemistry ugh. yeah avoid that like the plague <laughs> um so um the fact that meacherinkoids <laughs> meacherinkoid meacherinkoid for that sequence uh this semi <laughs> semi-lunar tail tip thing you don't have to do that because people generally do know what you're talking <laughs> about but I, I i mostly assume people aren't listening to me um yeah the fact they've got that lunate tail thing that uh vertical tail fluke that wasn't uh, here here i want to talk a little bit about this, the diversity within the group as a whole because um teleosauroids that's the more kind of air quotes gharial like still osteoderm bearing plazukians they persist into the early cretaceous and a bunch of recent studies mostly led by michaela johnson has shown there's a lot more diversity within this group than we sort of appreciated before there's various new taxa that have been named they're more geographically widespread than we thought uh more variation in like jaw form jaw length etc um but they're not doing the vertical tail fluke thing. Meacherinkoids doing the vertical tail fluke thing. They persist into about the middle of the Cretaceous when they go extinct. They don't survive into the late Cretaceous. They presumably died out as a consequence of like, there are a couple of mass extinction events in the middle of the Cretaceous and they seem to have been affected by one of those. I can't remember which one. But there's tantalizing suggestions from the youngest of their fossils that they were they were still like, uh, like evolving new diversity and there's a couple of uh, fossils um, taxa that have got really big tail flukes and have got really big eyes and it's like what are these guys doing what are these specific meteorine kids doing it looks like they might have been sort of more pelagic and more deep water than the other meteorine kids that are better known while I started when I was describing meteorine kids and metering coids in general i said that the in general sort of tubular streamlined skulls that is a generalization that goes for some of the better known ones it sort of applies to you know metering itself the first named of them of which many species have been named but we understand well today that there's a group of metering coids called geosaurines after geosaurus originally described from the solenhofen uh limestone of um uh jurassic germany which have got narrow deep skulls really big like interlocking uh ziphodont teeth so teeth like those of sort of theropod dinosaurs and they're clearly apex predators and they persisted into the cretaceous numerous lineages some of them got really large i think like six seven meters that kind of size and um so, yeah, metering kids were doing quite a few things in the Jurassic and Cretaceous oceans, which has a couple of implications. Because one of them for me is a thing I often think about when looking at extinct groups in the Mesozoic. And it's, it's not true just with the Mesozoic, but it's like if you were inventing a speculative world, and of course, this is something like, you know, you and I have dabbled in before, is imagine you're inventing a marine ecosystem. Well, in our marine ecosystem, we want there to be like loads of things at the base of the food chain. So there's going to be loads of invertebrates and squiddy things and fishes and stuff. Then there's mid-tier predators, animals a meter to two meters long. And then there's apex predators. And then there's the big bad predator at the top, like the super predator that eats everything, including, you know, it might, e it might even make its living from eating mid-tier predators. And it's like, well, we got that because in the Jurassic season, the early Cretaceous season, there's giant pliosaurs of several different plesiosaurian groups there's also quite uh, as we touched on last time there's quite a few good sized predatory ichthyosaurs also so it's like done right apex the apex predator niche in the jurassic and cretaceous oceans it's fully occupado like done right the the role of annoying talking mm. apex predator is filled <laughs> But then you've got these Thalassukians, which are doing this as well. So it's like, it's almost as if 
there's enough eco space in these ecosystems for you to have. There's Apex Predator number one. He's 10 meters long. He can bite <laughs> you in half. He's got laser vision. Number two, there's Apex Predator number two. He's got laser vision. He can bite you into three quarters. And there's Apex Predator number three. She's got laser vision. She can bite you into four quarters. And and there's Apex Predator number five. It's like, stop it. There's just too much stuff. It, there's too many damn animals. Stop it. It, is, it is fairly extraordinary. The parallel evolution going on in um is it is parallel evolution and convergent evolution going on in um uh, marine reptiles as yeah. is in the mesozoic isn't it it's just extraordinary it'd be i think it'd be a bit like if a whole bunch of those groups that weren't dinosaurs had persisted and become dinosaur-like animals right or or here we are on the african savanna oh no it's the lion no it's not it's super weasel it's a lion-sized weasel. Well, it kind of is a big... Well, yeah, anyway. There, there was. <laughs> there, were, yeah. there were super weasels. But, yeah. Um, yes. Yes. Um, yeah, it's really quite extraordinary. I wonder what makes them so... Um, pre-adapted is almost the word to be doing this over and over again. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I think part of it is to do with just having a... Um, a long, powerful tail probably helps with swimming and gets you back in the water. And once you're back in the water, you may as well keep exploring. But yeah, yeah, yeah. it just no, does seem extraordinary to me. I don't think it's tremendously difficult in evolutionary terms for animals like archosaurs and squamates to make this transition. But it also probably more significantly talks to the the niche space, niche space, the the resources that are available in these kinds of oceans. Right? It's like there must be such biomass that oh you can't no bob you can't you can't adapt to the marine life there's already like whales filling it up i'll be fine i'll be fine yeah sure <laughs> enough sure enough you are fine there's still space for and um yeah but i would have thought that one of the existing groups would just diversify into those things right into yeah. all the spaces rather than just a completely different group that starts from a di well a very different group that start, starts from a very different anatomical place mm. Yeah, I mean, reinvading be, over yeah. and over again. Because you to know, be, after after which we're probably going to get to, but after sea crocs, mosasaurs seem to step in pretty quickly, right? They do. However, after thalatsukians and ichthyosaurs go extinct, yes. So it's almost like there is a relay race there. But um, and to, and to be fair, also it's not as if so if there are big predatory geosaurine meterinkid meterinkoithalassikians <laughs> living alongside big predatory pliosaur style plesiosaurs <laughs> of various sorts and there are like large platypterygene ichthyosaurs if there are all those groups like sometimes they are occupying the same place they're not like you know one is in this ocean base and one is that ocean base and they're, li they're literally found you know in the same environment and stuff presumably they were carving up niches slightly somehow presumably exploiting slightly different prey but then they might also have been generalist enough that they weren't they were actually like if a dinosaur goes swimming it could get eaten by a pliosaurid pliosaur it could get eaten by a platypterygene ichthyosaur it could get eaten by a <laughs> geosaurine meterinkid um because yeah there are clear so in the in the geosaurines there are clear adaptations for vertebrate based macro carnivory so their teeth don't just like interlock but they actually like have they slide past each other so they've got self-sharpening tips with like heavy wear on them which is a you know a clear adaptation for slicing and dicing like the bodies of large vertebrates and mm -hmm. like i say they were they were impressively big like uh what's the biggest one pirani sucus i think it's called there's a couple of like real big ones that um yeah and the distribution of these animals is interesting. Now, as I cover in ancient sea reptiles, um, overwhelmingly our knowledge of all mesozoic marine reptiles is Western European. Then with a lot of the late Cretaceous stuff being dominated by um, the uh, intercontinental seaway in North America. But for the Jurassic and early Cretaceous, it's like there's so much stuff from Western Europe, from England, 
France, Germany, Switzerland, Italy, Spain as well. Um, and that's kind of made us think of those places as sort of like the home base for lots mm-hmm. of these groups. But then, of course, really, it's like the, if these are sort of like pelagic animals that can swim vast distances, which surely they could, why are they not globally distributed? So in the Jurassic and a good part of the Cretaceous, the northern continents, so North America, Europe, and much of Asia, are sort of united as this northern Laurasian supercontinent. And then south, south, you've got South America and Africa, and then India, and then Australasia and Antarctica as Gondwana. And then separating Laurasia from Gondwana is Tethys. Tethys running east to west. So if we're in Europe and sea levels in the middle and late Jurassic are like the highest they ever were in the history of planet Earth, I believe, the sea stands are so high that like most of Europe is flooded. There's only like sort of high peaks. So it's basically a bunch of archipelagos, presumably like perfect habitat for animals like uh, marine reptiles. Although it wasn't always tropical, we know from um, isotopes, certainly in the early and middle Jurassic, that it was cool or cold in places like western europe even sea temperatures of less than 10 degrees c which is really cold uh, apparently i think i think 10 degrees c is like the cutoff for like human um like livability in the water you, you sort of if it's colder than 10 degrees c that's dangerous like you mm. die after a few minutes being in it so some of these animals are in cool or cold waters this, this, is, the, this is a total tangent by the way um yeah and that's in keeping with the fact that quite a few of these mesoamine reptiles were endothermic. They were generating heat internally. They were retaining their heat. They were high-energy animals. Just realized I didn't mention viviparity. Thalatosuchians probably also evolved viviparity. Um, well, what's, let, me, let me finish the biogeography angle first. So in the late 1800s, people started finding thalatosuchians meteorinchids in particular they started finding them in cuba and then argentina and chile and so there's loads of them from south america and from the caribbean region if you include that in south america as well and if they're on the pacific side of south america it's like well that gives them the access access to the whole of what today we call the pacific but in mesozoic biogeography we call panthalassa gives them access to this vast ocean that covers more than half of the the planet so if they're in western europe and they're on the panthalassan side of south america well then presumably they're present throughout certainly the whole of the western tethys and how much of panthalassa are they in and this is a really common pattern in the mesozoic marine reptile fossil record got them in europe you got them on the south american coast some of on the panthalassan coast of north america as well does it mean that they're just like in the like sort of a narrow connecting population between the two or are they basically everywhere and we just don't have the fossils to prove it? We don't know the answer, but I think it suggests there's a vast amount that we don't know. Yeah, I mean, it seems the of the common sense answer is that they were everywhere. We just don't have the fossils. But yeah, um, yeah. Well, who knows? There might be something weird about the oceans that yeah. um, mean that it's not lots of places weren't actually suitable but that's right um, yeah animals animals can be surprisingly provincial and for all kinds of reasons and animals can also be ridiculously widespread for all kinds of reasons it's really difficult you can't just make a judgment call on this one but i do mostly like to guess and say that they probably were widespread so in moving away from the meteorinkoids in the teleosauroids you remember what they are the other group of thalatosuchians they're almost entirely western european there's some that are in north africa like libya tunisia morocco then they're also in ethiopia and kenya so if you now think of laurasia and gondwana if they're on the southern side of tethys so they're on the african margins there's some from india as well that's so that's consistent with them being on the northern margin of gondwana and then on laurasia they occur as far east as like china and laos and thailand so they are along both the northern and southern borders of the eastern side of tethys but what about the western side of tethys uh-huh. like why not there as well so they should be on the southern 
coast of North America and the northern coast of South America. And our prediction is they should be there. And at the moment, there's like tantalizing fossils, which suggest they are. So there's some tantalizing like early Jurassic teleosauroids from, well, Oregon. So again, that's on the Panthalassan side. And then in of North America and then in South America, there's one from Colombia. And this animal is really cool. There's a gigantic Colombian teleosauroid, which looks to be the biggest teleosauroid, the biggest thalassuchian, and one of the biggest crocodilomorphs like ever. It's I uh, 9.6 meters long, I've written down. I'm hoping that's right. 9.6 meters long. So tantalizing fossils. I think it's just a few vertebrae from, from Colombia. So. <laughs> So if so, are there actually lots of really cool teleosauroid thalassuchians in the Western Tethys? And like I said, if they're present on the Panthalassan coast, if they're in Oregon, then again, like, what's the deal? Are they like, these animals don't look like they were fully pelagic. I don't expect them to be like several thousand kilometers out into Panthalassa, but uh, they certainly had that as like a whole new world, like this vast ocean realm that was, um, yeah. So they're the, they're the they're the arm ones that are still armored, right? Just trying to keep this in my head. Yes, yeah. absolutely right. So we yeah. think they're probably living more like yeah modern crocs. Yeah, so they're the teleosauroids are almost certainly amphibious. So like they bask on land. They maybe they need these these osteoderms because they're still basking on land. You know, maybe they need them for. There's this idea that crocodilomorphs use their osteoderms in what's called the trug system, the self-carrying eye beam construction. You know, this idea that the dorsal musculature, if those are the osteoderms mm -hmm. and these are the vertebrae, that the musculature yeah. connected for our podcast listeners, the musculature <laughs> connected to the ventral surface of the osteoderms somehow helps to fight gravity and raise them off the ground when walking on land plus osteoderms do seemingly conduct solar heat to the body core in living crocodilians and also you want some protection if you're lounging around on land then you live in a world where there's dinosaurs so and teleosauroids also have the jaw musculature which is consistent with this um gaping behavior that crocodilians use in thermoregulation. Meteorinkids mm -hmm. don't. Meteorinkids have modified the lower jaw so much they don't have these like um, low cost jaw opening uh, muscles. And meteorinkids and presumably other meteorinkoids are like fully pelagic, fully aquatic, don't bask on land, which might be why some of them evolve large size, but then some of the teleosauroids evolve very large size as well, as, as we've just been saying. And so are teleosauroids more adapted for water than the modern uh, lineages or yeah, about yeah. the same? Yeah, so so this is something that I tried to touch on earlier. I might have skimmed over it. It's that we've, when someone describes a teleosauroid, you generally say it's like a gharial. So it's like a long-snouted, like, living crocodilian. But they're actually not. They're actually, like, way more specialised for aquatic life than even a gharial is. So, like... Their limbs are really proportionally small, but proportionally hilariously tiny relative to the whole length of the animal. The hands are really small. The forelimbs are really short. The hind limbs, the proportions are quite strange. The femur's really long. The foot's really long. The back of the skull is very strange. They've got this like giant sort of long box-like um, sort of entire temporal region with these enormous temporal muscles. Lots of lightning in the skull. And um, and their osteoderms, like their osteoderms are not a range like those are living crocodilians. It's what, and again, one of the reasons I object to people just calling all these things crocodiles, so it's it's in keeping with this trope that the the living crocodilians are living fossils, and they've just been the same for like two hundred million years. They really haven't. Living crocodiles and alligators are like really different from most of these fossil groups that people call fossil crocodiles. And teleosauroids, all of this stuff indicating that they are probably are amphibious. I reckon they're probably still nesting on land and laying eggs on land as is the traditional style for the archosaurs. Mm. Meteorinkids and maybe other meteorinkoids are almost certainly not. They probably did evolve viviparity. And we think this for two reasons. Well, we think it's for three reasons. 
number one, they're super specialized for aquatic movement, as has been established, what we've been saying. Number two, their pelvis is really weird. The pelvis is really wide. <laughs> and one other thing about it, I think it's the basically the cross-sectional shape of the pelvic aperture is not like that of other archosaurs. So in archosaurs in general, uh, if you imagine that you're looking uh, below the conjoined ilia and above the ischia, the aperture is generally kind of like a vertical oval. But in these guys, mm -hmm. it's not. It's a, it's a wide rectangle, long axis, re long axis, horizontal. And thirdly, there's a fossil of a adult one next to like a little baby one. And I can't remember what it is about the fossil that makes you think it was a baby that's like just popped out of its mum. But there's something about the fossil that does basically lean into that idea and so far yeah. i think there's there's a published abstract presented recently at a conference within like the last two three years and the workers behind it they said that's exactly what they said that's what it is they said it's a recently born uh you know youngster and this is evidence for viviparity in meeturing kids at least which has some broader implications because we have we as in those few people that have written about it have been saying for a while that archosaurs probably never evolved viviparity it has been suggested a bunch of times that various dinosaur groups evolved viviparity but the evidence has never been good and it's like wait a minute if the latsukians did we know that other members of the archosaur lineage did because we've got evidence for viviparity in um like tanistropius type protocertiforms <laughs> which is like an obscure group that i don't want to touch on now we might talk about them in another episode because they're part of the triassic marine story but um oh and also the ichthyosaurs and the plesiosaurs mm. and all of those things they might be on the arcosaur lineage as well and of course they are nearly not entirely but most of them are viviparous not all of them yep. some of them reg layers but um so, so this was I mean, there's no reason to think it's a rule or an, i'm an archosaur i can never evolve this right yeah mm -hmm. yeah it's just not no, possible thanks. evolution says no <laughs> yeah no, you just can't do away with the shelled egg which has yeah. been argued some people have said that well they can't do away with the shelled egg why not mm, they just can't mm, they, they need exactly. it they need it for calcium demands yeah, well, why can't they yeah, get the yeah. calcium? Why can't they just chew on cuttle bone? Mm, yeah, just, uh, this gross some extra calcium. No, nah, and they need. Yeah, those. there's no argument that you could make that doesn't go for other animals, as far as I know, right? So, yeah, yeah. Anyway. and the calcium eggshell thing. Just very briefly on that, you know, we are increasingly thinking that at least some archosaur lineages, the calcitic layer is like absent. The eggshells are entirely membranous. It's mm. been argued that that's the case for pterosaurs, and it's been argued the case that, that was it's been argued that, that was the case in dinosaurs ancestrally as well, with uh, maybe a lot of dinosaur groups having non-calcitic eggshells. So that just about covers everything I wanted to say on Philatosuchians, the sea crocs. Yeah, so ancient agency reptiles, a, a, a summary chapter of what we know about Philatosuchians uh, is therein. Um, that book is out now and very reasonably priced it is too and thank you to everyone who's bought it are you on the internet i am on the internet my website is johnconway.art and i am on mastodon my handle is at john at sauropods.win and what about you darren i am desperately looking for the why do i always misplace Bracket and Kazdan script for the Empire Strikes I never Back. have a name. You never have the script ready. I will. Okay, so my plan is that eventually some some super fan is going to go back to all episodes of the podcast and extract all the Empire Strikes Back quotes, and we're going to have the entire script to the film. That the, the, is... They've got to dub it over the movie. Yes. So thanks, super fans. You could do that. I tweet at put them back together right now. <laughs> Why'd I have a word with you, please? What do you want? Well, it's Princess Leia, sir. She's been trying to get you on the communicator. I turned it off. I don't want to hold her. Oh, well, Princess Leia is one who went Master Luke. He hasn't come back yet. She doesn't know where he is. I don't know where he is. 
Nobody knows where he is. What do you mean, nobody knows? Han glances at the fading light at the entrance of the ice cave as night slowly begins to fall on the planet. Well, uh, you see, at Tetsu! And I also blog at tetrapodzoologytetsu.com, which is also the website where this podcast is hosted. If you didn't know. If you didn't know that already. So uh, (laughs) thanks for listening and join us again next time.